Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast, supported by University College at Washington University. Offering approachable world-class education with undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Author, historian John Meacham is regarded as one of the very best in the business. He has written about presidents and the impact they and other politicians have had on events and society. His latest book is The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. In it, he focuses on events in our history that have divided us and brought us together, and on the leaders who made both happen. Bottom line, this is not an exceptional time. No matter how optimistic or pessimistic we feel about where we are today, we have been there before and survived. I spoke to John Meacham recently at the St. Louis County Library before a sellout audience of 900. Meacham is a former respected journalist, and I asked when he decided to abandon his career writing the first draft of history as a journalist to just writing history. You know, the first rough draft of history is a, is a wonderful phrase. It was Philip Graham's. Mr. Graham was Catherine Graham's husband and uh, the publisher of the Washington Post. Uh, he bought Newsweek uh, back in the early 1960s, tragically committed suicide in the, the fall of 1963. And he defined journalism as the first rough draft of history. And when I was at Newsweek, Mrs. Graham was very much in her Meryl Streep mode. When she walked in, you knew it. And one Monday morning, the magazine used to come out Monday mornings, and we had a section at the front of the magazine called Periscope. And the old joke was, you got $100 for an item and 150 if it was true. And there was a, a moment, we had, we had some kind of, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a, an item about a senator that the senator took great exception to. And he had called Mrs. Graham at home on Monday morning. Never a good thing. I was sitting in the office of Evan Thomas, my, my good friend, then the Washington bureau chief, and I can hear Mrs. Graham's voice coming through the phone. And Evan says, well, ma'am, it's just supposed to be the first rough draft of history. And I heard Mrs. Graham's voice say, but does it have to be so goddamn rough? I, I decided to write history because I love it. I love reading it. I grew up in libraries. I grew up surrounded by uh, Southern politicians. That's one of the reasons I'm as strange as I am. We had a police commissioner in the town where I grew up whose name was Bookie Turner. It was an occupational description, not a literary one. And I loved them. I just loved the whole, the whole drama of it. And so I wanted, wanted to write the kinds of books I'd read. At an early age, I'd read Churchill's War Memoirs, uh, William Manchester, McCullough gets upset when I say I read him growing up, so I say it a lot. You're in Missouri, obviously, and you've written about many people in this wonderful book. Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, LBJ, but you're in Missouri. I want to find out where Harry Truman stands amidst this group. Truman rose in my estimation in doing the book. He'd always been pretty high, but uh, I was particularly struck by his retirement canon if you will. Uh, of course, he lived 22 years, I think, after he came back and left a number of reminiscences, uh, the interviews with Merle Miller and plain speaking, a lot of writings he had done himself. And it's a real treasure trove of fascinating insights from someone in the arena about what it's like to execute those jobs and the, the human dimensions of it. So that was, that was a, a literary find that I hadn't really expected. The other is Truman, to my mind, represents exactly what I'm talking about in the book. My view here is that the American soul has impulses that belong to Dr. King and impulses that belong to the KKK. And you can't say that America has been hijacked somehow when the side you don't like is in charge, because both are there. And a given era is defined by which side wins out for a significant period of time. And Truman is a complicated figure. He, he used racial slurs. He thought Martin Luther King was a communist dupe. He was, uh, you know, he had Confederate relatives here. <laughs> he had an aunt, I think, who, when he was president, he invited them to the White House. And she said, Harry, I'll come. But if you put me in the Lincoln bedroom, I'm leaving. So he grew up with that uh, that ambient reality. And yet, when he became president on April 12, 1945, he saw his duty whole. He understood that he was now not a sectional figure. He was, in fact, the president of the United States. He owed a duty to the Constitution, to the nation. 
and integrates the military, commissions the first great civil rights report in presidential history called To Secure These Rights, first president to address the uh, annual meeting of the NAACP. There's a wonderful picture in the book of the pictures are great. Forget what it says. The, the pictures are He's standing where Dr. King stood, ultimately, at the March on Washington and speaking out to the, to the mall. Wonderful story. Uh, after he integrates the military and the Democratic Party is falling apart over it, Strom Thurmond from South Carolina is breaking away, forming the Dixiecrats. He has a luncheon at the White House of the executive committee of the Democratic National Committee. And a woman from Alabama, a committee woman, comes up. And I'm from Tennessee, and we always say thank God for Alabama. Never more so than last fall. So she stands up and says, can I go back to the South and say you're for the white people as much as the black people? And he does a wonderful thing. He pulls a copy of the Constitution out of his pocket, and he starts to read the Bill of Rights to her. And it's so striking a moment that an African-American waiter knocked over a cup of coffee on the president because of the tension of this, of this moment. Years later, when he was recalling it, he said, I still remember that old lady's face when I read her the Bill of Rights. But you know what? If we read those more often, we might not have as many troubles as we do. There's a wonderful book out there about Harry Truman visiting Washington, driving his personal car. But before the days of the Secret Service, he and his wife drove to Washington and back, stayed at hotels just like anybody else. Those were the days. (laughs) They were. and, And he's a great source of hope because, like Abraham Lincoln... You would not have bet a great deal of money. New Year's Day, 1944, would you have bet a great deal of money that Harry Truman was going to become vice president, president, and then rise to the occasion the way he did, creating the institutions that, at least until this afternoon, you will always check your phone to see what he said. You laugh. I said that somewhere about a year ago, and swear to God, a guy raised his hand and said, he just fired Jim Comey. I said, you're not funny. He said, no, he really did. Uh, but creates NATO, creates the, the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift. I mean, just, just becomes an incredibly important architect of the way we live now. And it was not something you would have thought was a slam dunk by any means. You used the word hope a moment ago. And you write in your book that our future really depends on whether we submit to fear or hope. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that we're living in a moment where the politics of fear are prevalent. Uh, I do some philosophical investigating on this. Fear, from a very early point, Socrates, Aristotle, all the way through, was seen as the anxiety created by the loss of what we love. Edmund Burke said, nothing creates so much unreason as fear. Because if you're on the precipice and you believe that everything you hold dear is slipping away, you become reactive. You become violent, if not literally, certainly figuratively. And fear is an emotion that in many cases defies reason. And I believe fundamentally that the American Revolution is nothing. The American experiment of which we're still the part is nothing if not the embodiment of the idea and the reality that reason should have an opportunity to take its stand in the arena against passion. If you think about what was going on in the world, in the Western world, in the two or three centuries before the American Revolution, you had Gutenberg, the invention of movable type, you had the scientific revolution, the European Enlightenment, the Scottish moral enlightenment, the Protestant reformations, the translation of sacred scripture into the vernacular, an entire reorientation of the world from being organized vertically, where popes and princes and prelates and kings were either by an accident of birth or an incident of election, had control over the fates of all of us, to a more horizontal understanding that we were born with the capacity for self-government and self-determination. And that shift to a horizontal understanding is, I think, the most important shift in Western life since Constantine converted to Christianity. And whenever we let fear prevent us from being able to think through what the next collective step should be, I think we're failing to take advantage of the founder's central insight, really. In your book, you report on many periods of divisiveness, of chaos, of turmoil, real times of crises. And uh, we can go back to the Civil War and count many of them and, and will during the course of our discussion. Where the heck are we now? 
Well, it's not good because here we all are. I love seeing you, but I don't think you'd be here if Hillary were president. Do you? I know you wouldn't because I wouldn't have written the damn thing. So that's an argument I win. You know, it's a period of great dispiritedness, no matter where you stand. If you voted for the incumbent president, you believed that the country was on an inexorable path to destruction. That's the only reason you would send this unconventional figure to Washington. It really is. And you believe that we were falling apart in a fundamental way. That's about, I don't know, if 35% of the country, 40%. His approval rating is an average of about 45% right now. I think that's artificially high for a lot of reasons. 55% of the country disapproves. So one of my arguments here is that we have a presidential party, which is not necessarily Democratic or Republican. What I want to do is meet the people who voted for Barack Obama four years ago and then voted for Donald Trump, because that's a scientific experiment we need to look into. So the presidential folks, the base, thinks he can do no wrong. Broadly put, the center left thinks he can do no right. And neither view is particularly productive because you have to be able to say something good about the bad guys when they do something good and bad about the good guys when they screw up. And we're at a point now where the tribalism of the age prevents that. You're really not allowed, if you're in either side, to, to, to acknowledge Again, this goes back to the reason idea. I think he's president because of two numbers. One is 17%. That's the percentage of Americans who say they trust the federal government to do the right thing some or most of the time. And that's down from 77% in 1965, down 60 points. The other number, and I realized the other day this is this as a double entendre, which I don't mean, is 130,000. I don't mean it for that. I'll wait. Think about it. I'm very tired of trying to explain to my 10-year-old that Stormy Daniels is a weather reporter. (laughs) But anyway, but $130,000 is the number that the Commerce Department estimates a family of four needs in household income to lead what we would think of as a classic post-World War II middle-class life. And household income is about $57,500. So with that lack of trust and that sense that the middle class is slipping away, you had the ingredients for this populist moment. But the base is obviously willing to forgive anything and everything with this guy. His popularity is higher now than it was a year ago. It is, and I think that's a function of, again, this tribalism. People pick a team, and they're with that team forever. I mean, there, there's, no, there's not a lot of room for nuance. And my argument here is that's particularly ferocious and fraught right now, but it's not entirely new. When Joe McCarthy, after his four-year reign of terror, after the Edward R. Murrow report, after Joseph Welch said, have you no decency, sir, at long last, have you no decency, his approval rating was 35%. You can get 35% of the country to say damn near anything. And Richard Nixon left in the, you know, was well, Truman left Washington at 22%. Nixon was at 25 I think. So you're never going to have everybody agreeing on something. The slice of the population that I I find most fascinating is I think there's 10 to 12 percent of the thinking folks who are engaged who are somehow or another giving him the benefit of the doubt. You're right about the base. He could do anything and has and will. But these things also take time. It took four years for McCarthy to burn out. The time that elapsed between Nixon and the break into the Watergate was June 17th, 1972. Nixon resigned on August 9th, 1974. 26 months. The hearings had started in May of 73. And this fabled moment, I suspect this is part of the imagination right now. People keep saying, oh, if only we had senators like Barry Goldwater again, who could go and tell Nixon to resign. You know, this is kind of a a, a talking point. The day that Barry Goldwater, Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, John Rhodes of Ohio, actually went down to the White House and told Nixon he had to go was August 7th. It was was, with 24 hours. It was after the Supreme Court ruled that Nixon had to hand over the tapes. It was after the transcript of the tape where he had ordered the cover-up was released. It was very late in the game. So 
one of the things I, I would urge everybody to do is I know that I mean, if you're here now, you probably keep matches at hand in order to set your hair on fire. <laughs> and you're trying to decide, should you do it before lunch or after, right? Before you strike the match, take a deep breath and remember that these things take time. We're talking with author-historian John Meacham, author of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. We spoke at the St. Louis County Library before an audience of 900. More in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with author-historian John Meacham at the St. Louis County Library before an audience of 900. Where did the intestinal fortitude go in Washington? It's not there. I don't see any evidence of it at all. I don't think that it was a, a massive category to begin with. You know, there's a reason Profiles and Courage was one volume. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, it's sort of funny, but it's sort of true. Right. I mean, John Kennedy could sit down and write a fairly short book of senators who who took a stand. My own sense, and you know these folks as as well or better than I do, my own sense when you you talk to senators privately is they're going to throw themselves in front of the train. But it's going to be like the roadrunner and the coyote. It's going to be right before it goes off the cliff. And in my state, in Tennessee, Trump carried the state by 23 points. We have two very sensible senators, Bob Corker and Lamar Alexander. Bob's leaving. But, you know, Lamar is not, Senator Alexander is not out there talking a lot about this, but I know what he thinks. And he's got to figure out, I think there's a, there's a core of these folks who have to figure out when it, when it is right to say something. And I wouldn't expect too much of them, just based on history. This is not an opinion. It's just historically based. Politicians are far more often mirrors of who we are than they are molders. And so this actually should give us some hope, because if we get our dispositions of heart and mind right, if you get the protest right, if you get the resistance right, if you make your opinion clear, if you convince enough folks that you're right, they'll be reflecting that. Right now, they're reflecting that in my state, for instance, he has an 82 percent approval rating among Republicans. So a Republican senator is not going to be out there pounding the table about it. So the work falls to us. If you're waiting for the United States Senate to do it, that's not going to happen. You have to create the opinion that is then translated into action in Washington. I want to go back to uh, Joseph McCarthy for a moment, because as I was reading your book, I was struck by the similarities in the two personalities, Donald Trump and Joseph McCarthy. Explain that for me, if you would. Very much so. Joe McCarthy was a junior senator from Wisconsin, had no real political base. He had to build one. He, in 1950, as his, his lawyer, who was later Donald Trump's lawyer, Roy Cohn, can't make this stuff up, demagogue in need of a lawyer, a call, Roy Cohn. <laughs> Motorcycle accident, demagoguery, whatever it works. You end up with, he ended up buying anti-communism, as Roy Cohn said, the way other people might buy a car. People came to McCarthy, they said, that we think there's an issue here. And there had been Soviet agents in the government. But they'd been mostly taken out in the loyalty programs of the late 1940s. So pretty much the problem was solved when McCarthy steps in. McCarthy was, and see if this sounds familiar, a freelance political reformer who understood the media of the day. He didn't have Twitter and he didn't have cable news, but he did have the afternoon and morning wire services. And what he would do is he, he understood their reality. And so he would call in the afternoon papers when they had 20 minutes to go and make crazy charges. I'm seeking a communist in Des Moines or something. And they wouldn't have time to check it. But a United States senator had just said there was a communist on the loose in Des Moines. So they had to report it. So it flashed out across America. The morning newspapers closed about midnight. So about 1130, he would call the morning papers and say, the communist in Des Moines is eluding me, but we're redoubling our efforts. So the morning papers would have that, and it would go on and on. It produced a significant media debate. Palmer Hoyt, the man who ran the Denver papers, 
led the charge saying, we should not simply report something because a senator says it. We should actually decide whether or not it's true. Radical. But we're seeing the same debate. There is a similarity. Yeah. No, it is. It is. And so there was, there was the media question. Television was growing. It was a time of new, new media. There were 3.1 no, million television sets in 1950 when McCarthy started. When he fell from power in 54, there were 30.5. Six-fold increase, right? So when, when people say, and the question I get most often, I'm sure you do too, is has it ever been so bad? Yeah, it has been. It was in the McCarthy era. If you're an African-American, it was for well over 150 years in the life of the country. Women have not yet voted for 100 years. It's been 98. 55 years ago in my native region and parts of the state, I'm sure, there was functional apartheid, certainly in terms of access to the ballot box. We haven't yet celebrated the third anniversary of the marriage equality decision. And people say all the time, well, you know, things are moving so rapidly on on gay rights. I've never heard a single gay person say that. Heterosexual social scientists say that, but not someone whose life was shaped by a denial of the application and implications of the Jeffersonian assertion of equality. So this is not a message of we've been through this before, so relax. It's that we've been through this before, so let's figure out how we did it and apply that now. It's a question of, uh, of looking back and feeling satisfied that we survived all these things, the nativism and the racism and all the rest of it. But here we are today. We're dealing with the same darn things. And always will. This is not a perfectible world. The founders saw it. We're, we're not seeking a perfect union. We're seeking a more perfect one. The reason the Constitution will endure, I believe, is because functionally it's a Calvinistic document. It recognizes that we're sinful. It recognizes that we will fall short. It recognizes that we're driven by appetite and ambition, that we're defined as much by our shortcomings as we are by our achievements. And it made, as Jazz Madison said in Federalist 51, ambition was made to counteract ambition. So if you're looking for the kingdom of God to descend because of a given election, you look in vain. You know, you mentioned McCarthy making use of the new medium of television. Well, we're dealing with a relatively new medium today, and that is the digital world and social media, which the president has been using apparently very, very effectively. How is that likely to change this whole dynamic? So many people have such a loud voice and the ability to reach so many people so quickly. Well, the damn thing about the First Amendment is you can't be for it for us and against it for them. That's the horrible thing about the Constitution. So, yes, we now have the infrastructure for a totally disputatious public to have total access to every possible voice. And if you have something to say that rises on its own merits, then you have as much influence, if not more, than Walter Cronkite did. So there are no gatekeepers. Uh, The best piece written about Trump, I think, was written over a year ago, two years ago now. Oh, my God. It's been going on a long time, hasn't it? America Held Hostage by David Von Draley, who wrote for Peace for Time magazine, saying that the Trump phenomena was the political equivalent of disintermediation. The same thing that's affected the media, affected retail, affected religion because of the rise of unaffiliated people was affecting that Trump was taking advantage of that in terms of politics. I don't think we know yet what the ultimate impact of the digital language vernacular will be. But remember, speed is relative. So if you were not accustomed to movable type and suddenly newspapers start coming with some regularity, that was an information superhighway in the 18th century, 19th century. Radio changes things fundamentally in the early 1920s, television again. But the flow of information is the democratization of information and the flow of power from the hands of the few to the hands of the many is an unfolding story. And yes, it feels faster now because it's really because we carry it around with us. And there is the capacity, if you don't get out enough of watching cable news all the time, I don't recommend, but you know, but there is a way of becoming almost overly engaged by it. And he takes advantage of that. Because his supporters, he feeds that constantly. His opponents, he drives to distraction. The opponents then overreact. He then makes hay on the overreaction. 
we're all locked in kind of a codependent relationship with this guy. We really are. And he knows it, and he understands how to exploit it, and that's not going to change. I hear a lot of concerns from people who look at today's more traditional media. You mentioned cable television. And the concern is that uh, people will go to their comfort zone. And the conservatives will watch the conservative channel, and the liberals will watch the liberal channel. We all know what they are. And never get exposed, rarely get exposed, to the views of the other side. That's true. And, And one of the things I would recommend to people is even though it will drive your blood pressure to dangerous levels, give the other side an hour every once in a while. Because if only then it'll it'll make you feel superior, even more so, right? (laughs) So you'll get that. So let's check that off. But it also, I think, will give you some sense of why that percentage of people that you may not agree with, why they think that. I think the great problem of the age, and it just requires the oldest of solutions, which is human contact, sociability, the idea that a republic is only as good as the sum of its parts. And so even if you disagree virulently with your neighbor, you have to engage that neighbor, is if we can actually realize that they're not bad people because they watch the other channel. They are receiving a reality, they're experiencing reality in a way that you don't, but somewhere there is actual reality. Someone said, and I wish I'd thought of it, that they hope Hillary watches Fox News because it's the only place in America where she's president. (laughs) It's a great line. How often have you been invited on Fox News? You know, more in the old days. I've done a lot of Fox News, and I think it's important to do it if invited. You got to hunt where the ducks are. And I insist on saying the same thing there that I would say anywhere else. And therefore, I don't get invited back much. But, you know, that's changed, actually, not to get too much inside baseball. But in the previous regimes, they were far more likely to invite people on who did not toe the line. And I think that there is a Trump effect there. They have the most important audience, and that's an audience of one. You know, and we've gone from, I mean, the movement from Franklin Roosevelt's brain trust to Fox and Friends in many ways disproves Darwin, right? You make much in the book over the significance and influence of protests in this country, a very important part of what you're writing about. Absolutely. And it's a boom time for protest, right? And for young voter registration, very heartening numbers, particularly because of the school shootings and tragically. But out of tragedy is going to become some action, I think. And I wonder whether these high school students who have survived these shootings may ultimately be look. We may look back on them as the John Lewis's and the Diane Nash's, the civil rights, uh, the young civil rights workers who came out of a lot of schools in Nashville and elsewhere, and led the nonviolent protest. I think that's an interesting possibility. Without protest, the country would be radically different and radically worse. And what is the country itself, if not the largest and most explicit act of protest in the history of the Western world, when we decided that self-government for a variety of reasons, not all noble. There were economic reasons for the revolution. There were reasons of power. There were selfish reasons. But again, we live in a fallen world, so of course there will be. But the American Revolution itself was an act of protest, grounded at least in part on a philosophical insight that self-government should have a chance to take its stand in the Western world. So we, we stand on the shoulders of protest. All the major changes are the result of some sort of protest, it would seem. Absolutely, because no one gives up, you know, look at Muammar Gaddafi, right, who's now sort of in our conversation. He gave up power, and look what happened. No one gives up power voluntarily. That's what makes the remarkable figures in our country actually all the more remarkable. George Washington was the central architect of the American presidency, not least because the framers couldn't figure everything out about it at Philadelphia in 1787, and so they, let it, they left a lot to chance because they knew they were looking at the first president. And George Washington, step one more step back chronologically, Washington had proven that he was worthy of that confidence because he had done something that no military leader in memory had ever done. He had surrendered ultimate power at the moment of maximum effectiveness when he handed the Continental Army back to the Congress. 
George III said, if, if George Washington resigns his commission, he will be the greatest man in the world. And Washington did that. At the moment when the commanding general in the great drama since Rome had become the dictator or the proconsul, whatever you want to call it, but become a autocrat, Washington went back to Mount Vernon. And because he gave up power in a Cincinnatus-like way, he ultimately gained it. We'll continue our conversation with author-historian John Meacham, author of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with author-historian John Meacham. We're going to be taking questions from the audience in a moment or two, but a couple of things from the book that I'd like to get your response to, specific cases that were mentioned. I agree with whatever was there. In 1940, the Nazis, fearing a third Roosevelt term, took out newspaper ads to influence the election outcome. Sound familiar? Yeah, we did it in the original German, and now it's in Russian. Yeah, I mean, election interference is is not new. We've done it a lot around the world, almost to no effect. We've never been very good at it. Turns out the Russians might have been better at it than we were. I don't think we know yet what the truth about the Russia story is. I know this. I would not want Bob Mueller chasing my lawyer. That's just not going to end up well. It's like in the 70s, the old joke was if you were a corporate leader and you walked in on a Monday morning and Mike Wallace was sitting in your waiting room, it was not going to be a good week. When Bob Mueller raids your lawyer's office, it's not going to be a good week. But yes, foreign influence peddling is, is, a, is a reality. It's what Dick Cheney called an act of war, what happened in 2016. One other item here before we take the questions, uh, again, taking some elements from your book. Would it be wrong to equate Roosevelt's internment of Japanese with Trump's Muslim ban? Well, we'd have to figure out what the, I mean, the, the Muslim ban, which is a sign that things work out because the rule of law stepped in and it, it was stopped, uh, Sally Yates at first, and then the courts. But the internment of Executive Order 9066 is one of the great stains on the American character. But it's part of the American character. This is part of my point. Franklin Roosevelt saves democratic capitalism, leads the, the, the great war against tyranny, and yet, in turns, totally innocent, patriotic Japanese, uh, American citizens of Japanese descent. And the key phrase I just used is, and yet. American history is defined by the phrase, and yet. We promised equality to all, and yet we didn't extend it to all. Franklin Roosevelt is the great champion of liberty, and yet he did that. Lyndon Johnson stopped civil rights legislation throughout the 1950s, and yet, when he became president, finished the work of Lincoln. Example after example after example. And no victory is complete. No progress is irreversible. And my own sense is that we have come through these moments, not least because people have stayed in the arena, however frustrating the news climate is, however frustrating uh, your your neighbor's intransigence, in your view, is we've done it. We've become a country where the immigration issue is that people want to come here, not leave. And there's some core there that has to be defended and protected. If I could get some indication from you folks as to who might have questions, and we'll start with this gentleman in the front row, I believe. President Trump has been very effective in discrediting the, um, the media. Do you have any suggestions going forward how the media can win back credibility and prestige? I don't want to be like Mario Cuomo and, and, and pick apart the predicate of the question, but I do think that he has been successful at demonizing some media outlets and lionizing others. And so where that leaves all of us is, who do we believe? This goes to Don's question a minute ago. How do you, if you you have these two planets speaking to each other, 
or not sp speaking at each other, not to each other. What do you do? I, I do think that the most pernicious thing he's, he's done is introduce this idea that any institution, whether it's the press, lawyers, the courts, whoever it might be, any institution that might someday have information that is ultimately damaging to him is illegitimate or fake. And that's what he spent most of his time doing. I don't know exactly how, I mean, maybe the small government people were right. Maybe we don't need someone running the government full time because no one is. Right. I mean, how does he have how does he possibly have time to govern? You know, there's golf and Twitter and Fox and Friends. And it's just thank God it's only two hours or, you know, who knows what would happen. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I think that a when you talk about the media, any universe that it goes from NPR to Fox News is a big term. So I think that the institutions that are doing things right, and I think the traditional ones by and large are, we, I still say we, we make mistakes all the time, screw things up. But I've done this, as Don said, for, for 30 years off and on, 15 years at the very highest levels at the time when news magazines were really important. And never, never did anyone I ever encountered push a story, push a line of argument for ideological reasons. We might have been wrong about it, but everybody was just trying to get it right. And people may not believe that, but I'm just testifying from the front that that was the case. That's, I'm sure that's the case for you. I was going to say, I, I hate to say this, I've been at it longer than you have. <laughs> I also have never run across that uh, kind of a situation. Another question in the back. Good evening. Two questions. Do you uh, and David McCullough and Doris Kearns Goodwin get together and decide who's going to write about what in the coming year? <laughs> and that would be a dork cartel. <laughs> I would love to buy you all lunch. Secondly, if my math is correct, your book, Voices and Blood, you wrote when you were a 32-year-old kid, which is the same age as my son sitting here. The world's changed a little bit since then. Your thoughts? I'm sure you've heard about Ferguson... Yeah, you're, you're. Well, the book you're holding, Voices in Our Blood, is from a Robert Penn Warren essay. I like to say it's the best book I ever Xeroxed because it's an anthology of other people's work. And so therefore I can brag on it without shame. It was the best nonfiction I could find about, about the civil rights movement. And there's a reason it was called a movement. It continues to unfold in, in different ways. I'm an incredibly fortunate person. I'm a white, southern, boringly heterosexual man who was sent to great schools, who had a great family. And I am, you know, when Trump said he wanted to make America great again, what he really meant is he wanted to make America like 1956 again, which if you looked like me, it was a pretty good time. If you didn't, it wasn't. And particularly when you get to questions of race, the reason that race plays such a big role in the book is because race plays such a big role in our lives. Still, and we have overcome the worst parts of legalized segregation and legalized enslavement, but we haven't overcome all of it. You all have seen that firsthand here and continue to. How far along is your son in his book? <laughs> and I think picking on the kid is a little mean. Really? <laughs> I gotta say, go buy him a beard. We have another question here. Yes, ma'am. Okay, well, first of all, I do watch MSNBC. I see you every day, and I start with Morning Joe and end with Brian. Oh, so, my God. Do you sleep? Well, I do it periodically. I just catch glimpses, even who on do, cruise. Well, wait, who, who do you sleep through? Because I'll tell them you said that. <laughs> and what are you doing from noon to one when you should be listening to the radio? I, I'm... <laughs> Sometimes I do catch you, but I have Sirius in my car, so I listen to MSNBC. I'm sorry. Don't, so, don't let her ask the question. So. And another thing. What? So I listen to everything you say, and one of the things you said is about being so hopeful. And yep. I'm wondering if after this week, the meeting yesterday with Nunez and that whole clown show, I mean, are you still as hopeful? That's I, the first one. Okay, uh, so this will be the Morning Joe one. Yes, I am, because imagine a world where, which you don't have to, we don't have to work too hard to think about, where the President of the United States decides to lock up 
American citizens because of their ethnic descent. That happened in the living memory of, of people in this room. And we endured, we prevailed. Again, I'm not saying that because we did that, therefore it will automatically happen. But I do think it has to create a sense of proportion about what, what's going on. I think the fact that we know, I think we only know it's a tiny percentage. Mueller is a little like an iceberg. We see the tip, but there's a big, you know, Brooks Brothers, good hair, iceberg below, you know. And so doesn't he look good? I mean, he looks like if Hollywood needed, if we need a special prosecutor. Okay, send him, you know. Take that, Elliot Ness. So I think the system is working. The question goes to the, the first question. The worry should be that I think the institutions will produce the information if it's there. I think the prosecutors, the courts, the question is going to be, and this is when the hope will go away. If you want to know the moment, here's the hope. Let's say he tries to shut down a court or impeach a judge or starts making noise about maybe we need some military maneuvers. That's when we hit the panic button. Right now, he's still, I think, essentially playing his reality show idea of a tough guy president. And he thinks of us as an audience, not as a country. That's an important thing. It's, it's interesting to me that after all of your research, you still remain fairly optimistic uh, looking forward. More so, more so, because... <laughs> Let's just take one example quickly, because this touches on Harry Truman. All right. In 1915, the second Ku Klux Klan is founded at a time of great economic strife when we're moving from an agrarian to an industrialized economy. The white working class is worried that open immigration is taking away their jobs because immigrants come and they work harder for less money. An explicit concern in the literature of the time. Birth of a Nation is released as the biggest movie in the history of Hollywood. It's this white supremacist view of the world. Woodrow Wilson, the great progressive Democrat, resegregates the federal government, passes the Espionage and Sedition Acts, closes down 400 newspapers. His attorney general launches warrantless raids on hundreds of houses of suspected dissidents, meaning you just disagreed with them, the administration. 1924 Democratic National Convention had 347 Klansmen as delegates. Took 103 ballots to nominate John W. Davis. The reason Davis got the nomination is because the Klan faction totally refused to nominate an Irish Catholic, Al Smith. 50,000 Klansmen marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1925. So has it been worse? Yeah. Another question in the back. When looking at the policies of Betsy DeVos and some of the systematic dismantling of education, what impact do you think that that has had on the current political environment and we're seeing and some of the Trumperism that has become so prevalent? I've been fascinated. I don't know if, if Missouri's had this. Have y'all had the teacher walkouts? No, but you know, it's happening around the country. Um, I was in Raleigh the other day on the day it happened. It's a fascinating unfolding question. In any other era, which is like saying, besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? At any other point, if the president weren't creating so much chaos, the story of education would be even more prominent because the central issue of our time, basically, is globalization and its discontents, its implications, right? So at the heart of that is how do you have a sustainable middle class because every successful society, particularly every successful democratic society in the history of the world, has had a sustainable middle class. I spent a good bit of time on this in the book. Truman, in the 1952 campaign, who was, he was outraged by Eisenhower. You know, they only made up at Kennedy's funeral, actually. They sat down and had some bourbon and, and, and did it. Truman was infuriated because Eisenhower said, I have a plan for peace. And President Truman said, well, you know, if you have a plan for peace, you might call your commander in chief and tell him about it in the 52 campaign. But Truman read a Business Week cover story on the campaign trail. And Business Week at that time was a Republican magazine. And it was quite warm about what the administration had done about building a middle class. And that's the great question. And education is, of all the, the two signifiers in the road to the middle class, are education and public investment. And what built the great American middle class of the post-war era was a combination of private enterprise and public spending. How many people here were affected by the GI Bill? How many people's parents were? Okay. So close to a third, if not more. The reason, I think, a reason that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 could pass 
was because we had the most educated populace in the history of the world, more college graduates than ever. We had more prosperity, more broadly distributed than at any other time in the history of the world. And if we don't recover that, if we don't find ways to make that a sustainable model, then we will be subject to these populisms of the right and of the left. One more point. What I'm about to describe is kind of the Star Wars bar scene of C-SPAN. Different set of people than these. George Herbert Walker Bush to Bill Clinton. George Herbert Walker Bush, wonderful man, critically important. Thank you, St. Louis, for him, for his mother in particular. But, you know, Bill Clinton was a totally different generation. Clinton went on Arsenio Hall, remember, to play the saxophone. George Bush thought Arsenio Hall was a building at Yale. He had no idea. All right, Bill Clinton to George W. Bush, a guy who couldn't shut up and revisited all his decisions to a guy who was plain spoken and made a decision and that was it. I didn't think we would see in American history as big a shift as George W. Bush to Barack Obama until 2017. There's something in the American spirit that takes us from guardrail to guardrail, which means we may get Aristotle next. Another question, please. Are you familiar with the book The Fourth Turning by Howe and Strauss? Dimly. Uh, generational yeah. kind of history. I know, the, I know the basic argument, yeah. That every 80 years, there's a circle rather than linear history. And I'm wondering what you think of that, because that would put us in the center of a crisis era, which would have been World War II, the previous one. Yeah, I do believe there's a mysterious cycle. I, I don't know enough about that particular argument to comment on it. I think certain symptoms, certain factors recur, and we do best when we're aware of how folks got through them in the past. And we have a question way in the back. I wanted to say, first of all, thank you for your perspective, because it helps reassure me that maybe this is not the most unique time in our history, but I do have one question. There's always a but. Yeah. (laughs) That I'm wondering if you think might to this time. And that is when you you hear the statistic that 82% of Republicans support Trump. But then I've also heard that 13% believe that he is honest. And I'm just wondering, is that to this time that people are willing to be lied to and accept it and support it? I think we're we're reaping the whirlwind of something. It goes back to that other number I I gave you, 77% in 1965. So 53 years ago, three quarters of Americans believed what, that Washington could be trusted. Now 17% do. So what happened? Well, Vietnam happened. Watergate happened. Iran-Contra happened. Clinton's indiscretions happened. The Iraq War happened. And so I think what's happened is that Americans are famously and wonderfully cognitive dissonant, cognitively dissonant, rather. You know, we can hold many different ideas in our head. And I think what a lot of people are doing right now, this is just my, my gut, I don't have any data to support it, but I think a lot of people believe that political truth has become relative. Rudy Giuliani said this the other day, truth is relative. You know, again, and I, you know, the fact that Rudy Giuliani is representing this guy is, is you, you, you really can't make it up. You just can't. And somehow or another, Rudy has managed to take him from not being in much trouble to actually getting him, you know, indicted. So, uh, so, but I think that ultimately, and this, this is, this is where my historical bias comes in. I just remind you, go read up on the McCarthy era. It took four years. Margaret Chase Smith saw it in 1950. Republican Senator from Maine. She gave a speech called the Declaration of Conscience, totally laying out the fact that McCarthy was playing fast and loose with the truth at best, that it was un-American, that he was trampling over the rule of law and the idea of fair play. She only got six co-signers. McCarthy dismissed them as Snow White and the Six Dwarves. Four years later, the Senate censures him. So as usual, the men were about four years behind. So I think, I think that's an interesting analogy. Let me put it that way. John Meacham, you just got the women's vote on <laughs> We have another question over here, I believe. Yes. Uh, Your point of view is that the uh, 
openness of a society is particularly powerful today, that there's a great span of belief of all kinds, and that's frequently called populism. Why is that term so unpopular among many people, including presumably liberal Democrats? Why is populism unpopular as a term? Well, I guess if it's, if it's interpreted to mean, I think it is, I think it's, it tends to mean either in, in the popular mind, either a nativist streak on the right and a redistributionist streak on the left. So if you hear that a Democrat is a populist, you start reaching for your wallet. If you hear that a Republican is a populist, you start thinking they're probably going to be immigrant baiting and race baiting a bit. So I suspect that's why it's not, uh, it's not a term that people embrace. Uh, the left wants to be called progressive. Um, I don't know what the right wants to be called, right? Uh, wrong. I mean, one thing, and one of the fascinating stories of the age is going to be how the Republican Party puts itself back together, or if it does after this. I think the story of the 2016 election for both parties is a troubling one because the two most interesting candidates on both sides were not members of that party. Bernie Sanders was a Democratic Socialist. Not a, he caucuses with the Democrats, but he's not a Democrat. And Trump is the only recorded case of a hijacker boarding a plane and the passenger side with the hijacker. One, one final question. Hi, I'm a 16-year-old high school student. How did you get in here? <laughs> and at my school, all of the teachers normally find some way to bring politics into our classroom discussions, whether it's art class or math class or science class. And I've been to both public and private schools, so I was just wondering, do you think it's appropriate for teachers to talk about politics in a classroom setting? Give me an example of what they would say in an art class, for instance. Especially during the election, they'll like bring up Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and, you know, either kind of talk like bad towards one side or the other. And it just doesn't really like have anything to do with art or math. So do you think it's appropriate for teachers to do that? Right. Like you, I love my teachers and you love yours, right? Because you haven't graduated yet. So you love them. I think if you introduce partisan conversation into an academic setting, it ends up being counterproductive. I teach, and I try to watch my snarkiness about either side, uh, not very successfully. But, um, but I do try because the, the cost of alienating someone who believes something different or whose parents do is prohibitive. Because you, if you're in a pedagogical moment, if you're in a teaching moment, your job is, to, is a rising tide to lift all boats. You're supposed to shed light, not generate heat. So, so I would try to avoid that. That was author-historian John Meacham during an onstage interview I did with him recently at the St. Louis County Library headquarters before a sellout audience of 900 people. Meacham's new book is The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at sdlpublicradio.org slash sdlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Mark.